0: My name is Jerry Lynn Ward, and I'm an attorney practicing in Texas. I'm also the hostess of this podcast, Justice in His Kingdom. The podcast will cover a broad range of topics that are related to the issue of justice. Of course, the term justice will be defined in accordance with God's law. I'm very proud today to have a podcast entitled The Tragedy of American Relations with Hispanic America, and to have as a guest someone who knows intimately the culture, the people, and the institutions of Hispanic America. And what I'm talking about is, of course, everything uh, south of the Rio Grande River. So I want to introduce Roger Oliver. And Roger is a missionary in Mexico who has intimate knowledge not only of Mexico but of other Hispanic American countries in which he has served. He understands the cultures and the institutions and has immersed himself in the study of those particularly with regard to Mexico. He and his wife Marcy run the Pierre Verre Learning Center, which is a Christian academy serving preschool through high school. They also sponsor a webpage, www.visionamericalatina.com, in order to promote Christian reconstruction in Latin America. Roger retired from the Army in 1992 and has an MBA at Syracuse University for the Army and has completed a Master's in Theology and Bible Exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary. And Before we get into this, let me explain a little bit what we are going to talk about. We are going to address justice as it pertains to foreign affairs between nations and how nations should act justly with respect to adherence to God's law in that area of life. And To do this, we will be visiting the story of American relations with Hispanic America and the origins and attitudes and presuppositions that North Americans have held in the exercise of those affairs and policies. We will discuss the application of God's definition of justice and the tragic failures in this story. We will apply those lessons that should have been learned to present affairs. Roger, thank you so much for joining me and I would like you to tell the folks a little bit about what your mission is in Mexico at the present time.
1: Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you already mentioned the learning center and the web page, and we're trying to do some podcasts. My young the young men that work with me uh, are very good at pulling that together, and of course, the purpose is is to ha- plant a mustard seed that will build the intellectual foundations of the future Christian civilization in Mexico. That's what we're what we write is our as our goal, what we're shooting at, we're not going to see the harvest of that, but we're planting the seeds and watering them, the plants.
0: Well, <laughs> why don't you tell the folks what other countries you have lived in in Hispanic America, doing mission work?
1: Uh huh. Well, I, uh, <laughs> I guess you could call the army of Mis- wherever Christian goes, he's a missionary. So I was stationed in Panama for four years, and in Honduras for three. The army sent me to the uh, Defense Language Institute to study Spanish and I grew up in Southern California so I've been exposed to the language all my life and the culture. I've been to Colombia, to Peru, uh, Ecuador, Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay to visit. I don't know that that qualifies me as an expert per se but I do have a a gut feeling and I've read quite a bit and have made my own conclusions Not everybody's going to agree with me, but uh, as it's influenced the way I do missions in in Mexico.
0: Well, one thing that I just talked about is how you are familiar with the institutions, and particularly of Mexico. And you run Mm -hmm. a school there, and of course the government has its own ideas about education, and so do many of the people because of some unfortunate events that have taken place in the last say, 150 years. So, can you Mm -hmm. tell the folks what your experience has been with the control that the Mexican government has tried to exert over the education of children?
1: Mm -hmm. That starts back in the 19th century after the independence from Spain. As early as uh, 1833, I think, they passed their first law taking education away from the Catholic Church and putting it under the state. It's uh, education is a religious activity and they were uh, moving towards statism. And of course you have to remember the 19th century is after the French Revolution and all of the philosophers were looking for a way to uh, stop the chaos of anarchy that happened during the French Revolution but still follow that pattern go to anything but god go to anything but return to the law of the gospel that gave some stability to the world of Christendom and positivism was a big impact in that and the first thing they did after Benito Juarez took over they passed a law in 1867 of public education that's how they're going to how they were going to take over uh, education in Mexico and basically move people away from the church towards the state away from Christianity towards the state as a source of their law, as a source of their worldview, to make a new Mexican that did not think in terms of Christianity but thought in terms of humanism. And it has worked quite well.
0: Well, you told me a story that I think ended up in a compliment, although it wasn't intended that way, about what you're accomplishing at the school that you run and the attitude that some of the Mexicans have where they have imbibed, uh, statism. Do you want to tell the folks that
1: story? Oh, about the uh, the uh, lawyer, the lo- the law teacher. You uh, mean? Uh, I think that's the one you're talking about. He, uh, the elite here know what they're doing and know what this is about. The average person just believes it and accepts it, but so they don't. Most people don't really understand exactly what's happened to them or or where this is coming from, but a friend, a young man that worked with us has a Ph.D. in economic, economics, and he was going down to a town about two hours from here, Tehuacan, to teach on the weekends. And he often rode. His name is uh, Oscar David. And Oscar David would ride down there on a the bus, and he'd often ride with this old fellow that taught law, derecho, as we say, as they say here. And uh, one day on the way back, On the bus, he explained to this old fella what the learning center is about and what we're doing. And the old man got angry and said, you're raising up an army of little soldiers against the state. Bingo. He understands better than most Christians do what we're about.
0: And Mexico was not always like that. They they were not statists before some of the occurrences that happened in the 1800s that were informed by the Enlightenment. Do you agree with that?
1: yes uh well there's a we're a mixed bag you know we're all of these as we study the byzantine empire as a real is an example they did a lot of things good but they kept they codified the roman humanist law so it's it's not always perfect but we can't be perfectionists. for some reason god allows this to to grow very slowly over lots and lots of generations uh to accomplish what he wants but there was uh the spanish catholics did a lot to leave a, a legacy of what they call the law of the gospel. They really tried hard to teach people to live according to the Ten Commandments, if you will. And uh, well, the much There's a lot of what is believed about what happened here that is just myth.
0: And we're going to get a little bit more into that uh, later. Mm-hmm. And also, I want to talk, uh, in, in that vein, we're going to talk about how... North Americans and perhaps other uh, countries in Europe Mm -hmm. adversely affected what had been accomplished in Mexico and in uh, Central and South America. But I think since we're, this is a podcast about justice. And justice, as practiced in every area of life, justice towards each other, justice of that governments are responsible for, uh, and just, justice between nations. So I think we mm-hmm. should define what justice is in terms of God's law. And and Roger, how would you define the word justice?
1: It's a good question because I was thinking about why it seems so hard to define it and i think the reason is because we have to start with what the standard is uh, of course the bible says loving your neighbor romans chapter 13:8 through 10 says uh, that lo- lo- loving your neighbor fulfills the law and i've often thought of that as i was growing up and i think a lot of christians do that if you have some kind of an emotional feeling towards your neighbor um the law doesn't apply, but that's not what it means at all. What it, what it's actually saying there is if you don't, you don't harm your neighbor in terms of the law, you don't meddle with his family, you don't commit adultery with his wife, you don't steal his stuff, you don't take his life, that's loving even the guy that drives you nuts, the neighbor that uh, is loud and uh, gross and all that kind of sort of thing that you don't really like to hang out with him. But how do you love him? By keeping the law towards him that's the beginning Uh, now you you asked you wrote some notes here and asked me how else how else do we do what is justice in what other way I think that answer is not that complicated it's blessings and cursings according to the norms of God's law It's focusing focused on restoring the victim establishing the facts according to due process according to God's law which he lays out those processes and also and it's not hard if everyone agrees that god's law is the immutable standard and of course it starts with faith in god's justice and i think the issue that we're talking about in this podcast as i understand it is what do we do for the part that's been delegated to us being finite uh humans and not and infallible the part that so we don't make it as best we can so we don't make errors and it has to do with this due process and everybody understanding and agreeing on what those standards are, they're immutable. Uh, If you don't, you'll need an expert, you need expert lawyers like we do in the United States now and in Mexico to represent you. Uh, The standard will be capricious and and you will not have access to redress of grievance as a victim. It's just, we don't have access to judgment here, to justice here in Mexico. We really, really do not have access to a process of getting justice. In Mexico, under the law that we have right here, you are guilty until you prove yourself innocent, and you can be thrown in jail, and just rot there until you can get a hold of somebody who can help you. There's I got lots of stories about and, this, and in fact, injustice rules. It's just the opposite of what we're talking and about.
0: And that that is a feature of the civil law system that they use, which Europe also Europe, with the exception of uh, mm-hmm. Great Britain, uses. Correct.
1: I think so. Yes, it's uh the the napoleonic code kind of an idea where you pass a law to try you try to pass laws to cover every exigencies and you leave some uh space in there for the local bureaucrat to decide and of course if the local bureaucrat is unjust you're going to be uh you're going to be stuck and that you're going to be like the woman the widow who kept pestering the judge for justice until she got it it's costly it's time consuming uh, and, and the judges are just, uh, the judges tend to be inhuman in a sense of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Arrogant and overbearing and tyrant, tyrants. They just, well, you know, I'm, I'm the boss. I'll tell you what, it, what the law is.
0: Well, I know that John Calvin supported the civil law system and was a lawyer trained in that. But there, mm-hmm. there probably were some developments that came along with different movements uh, including the Enlightenment that made the situation worse than it was when when Europe was Christianized, more Christianized. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm sure that a lot of that came over to Mexico after the revolution against Spain and the mm-hmm. impact of other types of uh, movements in that country. And we're going to go back to, mm-hmm. to that and talk about that a little later but now I I want to focus on another aspect of this because you have alluded to the propaganda that has been generated and used against Mexico and I'm going to get into that in just a minute but would you agree first of all that nations should act justly towards other nations with respect to foreign affairs
1: Yes, that's the same. I think it's the same norms that ought to govern that activity as to govern individuals.
0: And if nations employ defamation and propaganda, they are not acting in accordance with God's law. Do you agree with that? Yes. And in fact, the Westminster Confession has some good commentary in the in, you know questions and answers concerning. The ninth commandment, which we're talking about right now, and how would you expand or expound upon that with respect to what has happened uh, with regard to Mexico and our nation's attitude towards
1: it? Uh, well, I yeah, I was thinking you you might read that. So, but it's just absolutely the uh, one forty four question one forty four. Is very and you're talking about the larger the catechism.
0: Duties?
1: Yes. What are the duties required by the ninth commandment? And it's uh, it's about a paragraph with all kinds of verses to support it. If our state department uh, were to apply, apply, apply that, actually I believe the state department ought to be abolished and, and we ought to encourage churches to send missionaries, churches to send missionaries who understand the law and what, what we're trying to accomplish, not the American system but a but Christianity and that's our biggest problem we don't act justly because we are not motivated by we do we have abandoned god and we make our own laws and it's all about gaining an advantage at whatever cost rather than justice We're, our foreign policy is not governed by justice it's governed by the desire to get an advantage to make alliances to get an advantage over other people
0: which is a violation of the ninth commandment as detailed in the Westminster Confessions uh-huh. and scripture correct
1: uh-huh. I think so Yes.
0: alright and let's talk about the application of God's law even further uh, there's been long been propaganda and collectivist views of what Mexico is like in our country mm-hmm. can you talk to the folks about what the genesis of, of that is just briefly and how far back it goes and then let's let's bring the continuation of that into the into the present or at least 150 years ago because we've we've got two different things that we're talking about here we're talking about hispanic america but hispanic america has also been part of spain in the past until they mm-hmm. broke away from spain and the attitudes towards Mexico and the other countries has remained in many respects even after that point in time. Do you want to talk to the folks a little bit about the history of propaganda as used against Hispanic America and Spain?
1: Uh, Sure. I think one of the first things that occurs to me is to try to define propaganda, which is really difficult. There's all kinds of different versions of it, but The one that kind of makes the most sense to me uh from another book actually Jacques Ellul's propaganda the formation of men's attitudes is an excellent book on propaganda but he he doesn't he gives up on trying to define it and studies the factors or what what do propagandists do and fundamentally they try to change people's attitudes to gain an advantage over them not necessarily telling the truth telling half-truths and they do it in a way, and a part of the deal is to do it in a way that people don't even realize it's happening to them. So, I uh, read a book by Philip Wayne Powell called Tree of Hate that opened my eyes. I heard about it on a, um, a podcast or a, a easy chair where Rush, uh, R.J. Uh, Rush Dooney and Otto Scott interviewed the author of this book. And I understand there's a whole history of how uh helped him recover the rights to that book to reprint it because the original publisher published it and printed a bunch of copies and took it off the market i guess they didn't like the message but uh about three centuries ago as a part of a a hate campaign towards spain related to holland trying to get their independence uh, you have a whole publishing pamphlets with a one-sided version of the story of what went on in the conquest of Mexico. There was a priest named, uh, uh, oh gosh, what was his name? Casas? De las Casas, yeah, de las Casas. But uh, Benemer, I see what was his first name? Huh. Uh, Bartolomé de las Casas, I should know that by heart. He was actually a pretty good guy, but he wasn't, he had his limits too. He was, there's a little bit of skeletons in his closet as well. And at the time, uh, spain was a leading country a leading power in the world Uh, did a lot of good things for for a lot of people and did and they made a lot of mistakes as well and so they had this open uh, the the one good thing about spain is they had this open discussion amongst them Uh, both sides kind of like a courtroom arguing their points pros and cons uh off the off the chart uh hyperbole between them, and all of that got picked up in the world, and only the side of Bartolomé de las Casas. This, yes, some of the things he said did happen, but they weren't as extensive as he said they were, and they weren't as uh, uh, they weren't as bad. They weren't as uh, there weren't all the time, and there were a lot of good things. All the good things that Spain did in in, Latin, in, uh, in the empire were omitted for propaganda reasons. William of Orange. Uh, decided to use pamphlets in an effort to gain independence from Spain and the propaganda pamphlet which had the widest spread and deepest and most enduring hispan hispanophobic effect was Orange's apology of 1580 and it really was Bartolome de las Casas what he wrote and what he presented in an argument before the king with another more conservative I guess the word is conservative, I don't know. I an apologetic for that Not everything we're doing is wrong there. Uh, So that one got picked up and published all over the place. The English picked it up, the Germans picked it up, the French picked it up, Uh, and, of course, the Dutch trying to get independence from Spain picked it up, and all over the place, and this became the view of Spain. Uh, They already had spoken of them as uh, dark people. They had a word, marron. So there's a little bit of skin color thing and mixing with uh, other people's intermarriage between the so-called races wasn't a problem in Spain and the other nations picked that up and made an issue out of it as well. So you have this big propaganda thing. This is our view to this day. What was in those pamphlets has become what is in the textbooks in the United States of America. And I see that in my my own perspective of Latin America. What I had been told is this is a fact. This is how it is. Is that same propaganda. Most missionaries who come here come with that attitude towards Latin America.
0: Yeah, let let me interject something here because I'm going back to the Westminster Confessions larger catechism to uh, question 144. What are the duties Mm -hmm. required in the ninth commandment? And I'm going to read just the first part of it, but the first part of it says the duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own. So it sounds like we've got Mm -hmm. the promotion of being uh, maligning Spain by its European neighbors and Casas went so far as to malign his own people's names by using hyperbole in his writings, which is also a violation of the ninth commandment. Would you agree with that?
1: I think so. Uh, I'm not sure how, I mean, it's, we're, like I said, we're all a mixed bag and he's painted as some kind of saint that it was really concerned with for the indigenous people and the stories about how they were enslaved and all that sort of thing are really not, not true. And it's that the Spanish came to Latin America to dig out the gold and go home. and most most of the people that came here were middle class people looking for a better life. and there's actually more income generated from cattle and sheep and hides and all those kinds of agricultural activities than there was from the gold and silver. but that's of course, you know, glitters and it gets in your it gets your yes, attention. I have
0: no doubt that he was probably a very compassionate man, but compassion does not justify maligning people without basis does it I mean we're all sinners no and and he could never have foreseen what his writings would in the kind of hatred his writings would engender against Mm -hmm. Spain when he was writing that I'm sure and and it's especially ironic in light of the fact that the king in Spain was adamant about not enslaving the Indians and passed many rules and laws prohibiting their mistreatment
1: Mm-hmm. That's why uh, slavery of Africans never got a, got a foothold in, in New Mexico and the slavery of the, of the natives. They were. It's typical for this kind of a, uh activity where you're facing uh, a brutal enemy that the farther you get away from the battlefield, the more sympathetic you are to the enemy. There was some of that going on, but the truth is the truth. The law is the law. And so I think by the providence, divine providence, benevolent providence motivated the king. He hated slavery and he was outraged by it. Uh, the soldiers were hired. There. I need to set a, set a stage here. In the first, in the, in the uh, 1500s, that would be the 16th century, the last part of the 15th, 16th century from about 1840 to 1890, there was a war. 15, a you mean 15, of
0: not 18?
1: 15, 15, I'm sorry. fifteen. 40 to 1590, about that time, there was a war with uh, native peoples that was much bloodier than Hernan Cortez's conquest. They were similar to, the, to our Comanches and Apaches, and, uh, probably related. They were called the Chichimeca. And they hired soldiers f- for a year at a time, and, and they paid them a soldier's wage, which wasn't very much. And they were mostly cowboys, that manned the ranches, and, and dressed up and wore their, their war gear and uh, went out together to fight these people to protect the the highway to the to the silver fields on the west northwest side of Mexico and in uh, Zacatecas and uh, they would capture they take the captured uh, natives Chichimeca and they would sell them for to make some more money as slavery and when I got back to the King of Spain he put a stop to it and they over time they begin to look at ways to uh, to be just according to what they understood i really think they they were trying to do what they understood to be god's law to be fair to these people and they tried they worked on incorporating them given the gospel as they understood it and incorporating them to a society that was governed by the law of the gospel as they as they called it well so,
0: great greed can trump all that kind of thing and and was it not yeah, the creoles that. in Mexico or in, in uh, Hispanic America, uh, with respect to this Indian tribe who were kind of driving the attempts to defy Philip's edicts and to enslave Indians, the ones who were, the, well, the Spanish who were actually born in Hispanic America?
1: Uh huh. Well, there's a mixed bag there uh yeah i'd say creoles had something to do with it uh the first the main uh soldier that was really a hero on the battlefield that uh helped pacify the the chichimeca was miguel caldera who was one of the first mixtecas uh you know uh, a mixture of spanish and indian his mother his father was a spanish miner and his mother was a uh, Chichimeca, one of the from one of the most violent tribes, so I yes, I think as I recall that was that's true. They wanted to enslave people, but the king there was enough force of law to prevent that from happening. And when the king found out about it, he put a stop.
0: And and one thing that is different than the history you and I probably learned in school is that the, the New Spain was not occupied. By massive amounts of Spanish troops, was it?
1: No, the no. The, it's really interesting how they ran, they managed an empire that went from uh, Canada, maybe even Alaska, all the way down to the tip of South America, and all the way over to the Philippines with wooden ships and ink. They wrote. They just wrote letters by hand, and they wrote thousands of pages of reports. They were very disciplined about it. It was part of their culture. And this is how things, you can imagine, how did this all this happen when they didn't have the internet and instant email? They wrote letters and they could put it on a ship and it went back to the king. And they some call, he'd call people back and they'd be there for months before they came back here, but life goes on. It just keeps moving. And they didn't have forces here except to defend uh, what, what they had, uh, what was their empire from, more from Dutch and English pirates, other pirates than from, than to try to control the people. Yeah, that's that's one thing yeah. I find
0: very interesting, and, and one thing that propaganda seems to be a useful tool or weapon against, and and that is that when you demonize a people, then mm-hmm. many times things that would generally not be permissible, you might start thinking are permissible. Because here mm-hmm. we've got this demonization of Spain, and. That means that Queen Elizabeth, although she did this with a wink and a nod, uh, did nothing to stop English pirates from attacking and stealing mm-hmm. from the Spanish.
1: Well, they actually commissioned, well, besides besides pirates, they were basically pirates that were licensed by the crown called privateers. But they were. Yeah, that was, they were not. I mean, they weren't, they, they, had, they had letters of permission from the crown to go steal stuff from the Spain to, to, to go sink Spanish shipping and, and, or take their ships, basically do what pirates do only in the name of the crown and keep whatever they got.
0: Another thing that I want to talk about in terms of this book that uh, you've been discussing and I, I kind of want to expound on it, the actual full name of the book is Tree of Hate, propaganda and prejudices affecting United States relations with the Hispanic world Mm -hmm. and like you said Philip Wayne Powell was supported by Rush Dooney and in fact there is a great easy listening uh, episode and it's number 147 in which Rush Dooney, Otto Scott and the author all have a discussion about uh, Hispanic America, and one mm-hmm. thing that's very interesting about that is it also discusses how Christianized Hispanic America was. And Rush Dooney is actually talking about this, and and and, and basically the question comes up: uh, Why are we so close to some European countries and other countries when our closest neighbor or one of our closest neighbor was? a Christian country that we seem to have no esteem for. Mm-hmm. And so do you want to discuss a little bit, and, and of course neither you or, or uh, I are trying to ad- advance Catholic, Roman Catholicism, mm-hmm. but there were some things unique to Spanish rule in Hispanic America that created something that maybe we didn't learn about in school you want to expound on that
1: well I, I was thinking of one thing well let's go back to the chichimeca wars and how they did the pacification there's a book by powell called mexico's miguel caldera in in one of the appendices he put side by side what we did in the west next to what the uh what the new spain new spanish did in mexico uh, to go north as we did to go west uh, facing these indigenous these violent indigenous tribes and we would have learned something from them 300 years earlier if we'd have paid attention but we were too proud and, and interested in just we wanted to wipe them out what the Spanish wanted to do is incorporate it into, uh, into Christendom one of the things they did that was very interesting an an early group of people an early tribal group that was conquered by hernan cortez cortez became catholic and very loyal to him was the tlaxcalans there's a little bitty postage sized state stamp right north of us here in puebla named tlaxcala that's where they were from and when he when hernan cortez conquered them they were sacrificing human beings and practicing cannibalism and all that sort of thing so about in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, after, long after the conquest, you know, you got several decades there of growth in understanding what Catholicism is. One of the things that the Spanish Viceroy decided to do was to negotiate with the Lux Collins. How interesting is that? Instead of rounding them up and sending them on the Trail of Tears, he negotiated with the Lux Collins to send, if they would give him a 1,000 people, that is, however many families it takes to make up a thousand people and that the government would use the Treasury of the King to move them up into the area on on the the northwest of Mexico City where these Chichimeca Indians were were fighting the Spanish and they were on peyote and they were it was just a violent primitive kind of a people and they agreed and the point was to send them with priests so they would have their services so they would learn God, the law of the gospel and in live they would form communities in this area, in these areas where the Chichimeca were and teach them how to cultivate, teach them how to, uh, and by their interactions, how to do commerce and by their interactions with the Chichimeca, tra- draw them into learning the law of the gospel. And so the system of law and justice was supposed to be based on that concept, which is really basically God's law. the best they understood it. Imperfectly applied, but that was the point. And they actually uh, continued this policy and moved Collins up into California and all the way to Texas to try to do the same thing to civilize, if you will, or Christianize the local people by their interactions with another indigenous group that had become Catholic Christians. In that interest. That's very interesting. But
0: it's this approach that probably allowed them to build quite an advanced civilization with great universities great cathedrals great institutions and and very profitable enterprise in Hispanic America would you agree with that
1: yes 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 it's interesting they did make uh, they did coin money and in uh, silver, a lot by the thousands, and it's where we got, actually got our dollar and where the word pieces of eight comes from. They cut them into eight parts. I, don't, I can't really tell you the whole history of that story, but it's money, really interesting. It was a money that wasn't controlled by a central bank. They just uh, made the coins, and they were used, used for exchange in the United States even. Well,
0: we've kind of discussed the history of the attitudes that permeated Nordic Europe, Italy, And some Mm -hmm. of the other countries in Europe, and and also England, as well, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, during the Spanish rule, as well as well as America during the Spanish rule of Hispanic America. But when the when the revolt against Spanish America against Spain came, and Spain left, the uh, you know left. Some of those attitudes still prevailed in North America and in in the United States. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, well, now what, exactly what uh, attitudes you mean towards Latin America? Well, the
0: attitudes that we talked about that were engendered by Mm -hmm, the propaganda, mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. the particular propaganda characterized the people in a certain way. Uh, You want to expand on that so that the audience knows what we're talking about?
1: Uh, well, there's a take into account what was going on in the 19th century. There was this, the Enlightenment's purpose was to rebuild civilization on something, on pure science, uh, and take the, take civilization away from Christendom, away from the law of God, uh, and that influenced the settlers. These this Creole people, as you mentioned, I think were probably a big part of that. They were influenced by the, the uh, currents in Spain. And when they ran the Spanish out and destroyed their credibility intellectually, the Mexican leaders, the Mexican elite, turned to, to France with their French Revolution. It's really ironic that the French came here and conquered uh, Mexico and, and ruled it by a under 30-year-old Emperor Maximiliano and his wife Carlota both of them under 30 years old, for three, three years and Mexico beat them on the battlefield. But right away when Benito Juarez took over and a lot of his confiscation of the church's property is an example of the propaganda making, uh, vilifying the church when it was really more like a uh, French Revolution, confiscating uh, and, uh, the land and of the church. And killing priests and trying to un-christianize the country his point was to try to un-christianize de-christianize Mexico if you will so When the first thing he did was to get a group of philosophers and one of the principal ones a fellow named Gabino Barreda Which Rush Duny has also written about it's very interesting I've done a lot of study of the positivist movement in Mexico and they took over the educational system where did Gabino Barreda get his training That to change the worldview of, of Mexicans From Auguste Comte the founder of or the main guy in in this uh, philosophy of positivism A Frenchman and he went to Paris and learned it So they beat the French on the battlefield But the French beat them in the in the area of philosophy and worldview and today I would say Mexico is not as Catholic as we think it is. It's more secular secular humanist, and that's an influence of the of the of this positivist socialist collectivist statist philosophy that continues to this day they're highly influenced by it, whether they want to they say maybe it's past and it's something in the past and it failed but they're really positivists at heart just just like our legal system then since uh, Oliver wendell holmes it's very similar it's whatever we say is whatever science tells us is that's what's right and wrong but only the only thing science can tell you about right and wrong is what is is right that's the best you can get, and that's exactly what they want to do. So, I, I, in this sense, I would like to throw in a couple of, you were going to ask me something, I think, about the certain Americans that had an influence in this, and our foreign right, policy. Right, right, and American, one thing I want to make clear is yeah. I'm not
0: only talking about the attitudes in Say Mexico or the other Hispanic America, American countries. I am also talking about the attitudes that Americans have, or North Americans, people who live in the United States, have had toward the Hispanic people. A lot of that which comes from the the things that were described in the Tree of Hate with regard to the propaganda campaign that lingered. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, I grew up in Texas and. The, I, I know that the attitudes towards the Mexicans when I study the history of the Texas Rangers and and what went on uh, at the border in, in the early 1900s. In fact, my grandmother's uh, stepfather was in the cavalry with Captain Black Pershing and mm-hmm. chasing Pancho Villa. Project. And mm-hmm. I think the attitude mm-hmm. has long been, and some of this I think is hyperbolic and influenced by... Tradition is that that Mexicans were bandidos and mm-hmm. did not work hard, and I don't know where they got all that, but it's certainly antithetical to what Spain built at that time. Prior mm-hmm. to
1: that, I, I I have some relatives in Texas that that. Uh we are highly influenced by our personal experiences. So there were bandidos, and there were depredations, and there were all of that stuff went on, but that doesn't mark all of Latin America. And our error is to put everybody in a basket and treat them all the same instead of dealing with individuals in court, according to God's law, which is very personal, very personally oriented, restoration of the victim. I think that's where we where we get off track. And uh, so there were some things that went on across the border with Texans, but Texans have been listen, li- living with Mexicans and and uh, actually first Texans were came to Mexico came came to Texas by the invitation of the Mexican government government as a as a uh, obstacle to help them control the Comanche which were raiding deep into Mexico Mexican territory. So that's really interesting. That's where you get that come and get it right. flag in Texas. Uh, and actually, it was a war when Santa Ana came up and fought the, uh, the settlers in Texas. He was fighting against his own citizens. Right. Not against Americans. Right. That's a misnomer of the history. That, that's another part of the history we don't understand. But way back in the, in the 1800s, early 1800s, our very first uh, ambassador to Mexico was, had been a senator. Mexico and Central America. he was the ambassador of Mexico and Central America. His name was Joel R. Poinsett. He's from, I think, from South Carolina. And he introduced the Masons to Mexico and got Benito Juarez and several other elitists that were into the French positivism to have secret meetings. They had secret meetings in, uh, in New Orleans making their plans for exactly what they've done, what they did after they gained power. And one of his purposes was to get more states from Mexico that were pro-slavery into the United States to gain political power against the states that didn't want to continue with slavery. So it's really interesting how that happened. When when they discovered, when the central government, our government discovered what he was doing, they recalled him, but the momentum had started and uh, Benito Juarez is famous for being a Mason and uh, that's a whole study in itself it's really interesting but so he was a he was one of the first guys. The interesting thing is he had a hobby of being a botanist so he stole what they call the flor de las Pascuas in Central America and they call it la noche buena here and put his name on it. That's why we have we call it the poinsettia. Wow.
0: Well, mm-hmm. what we've got here is two different dynamics going off on at the same time. First of all, we've got the the underlying attitudes of a broad section of the people of a country and their attitudes towards other countries. And then all, all, we've also got the agendas of foreign governments.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I think, well, there's another there's another uh, story that moves this thing forward. Under, I think it helps to understand the, the currents, the political currents in the United States and what was driving this. We were going more and more. I, I heard the other night, I was listening to Rush Dooney, he commented that there was a socialist movement in the United States a movement before marx ever wrote his book uh and there was uh, it's interesting to study the history of the politics that led the progressive era in the united states so we're we're moving in that direction so you've got a movement from government that is really starts in the family and is primarily in the family to a government that is statist and that's where you get these problems it's always the elitist that starts war that start wars and uh family to family most of the us get along very well. And when we, we ask for justice, when an individual treats us badly or steals from us or murders a family member, but this whole thing about putting all peoples in a basket, it's state to state. It's a civilization where the state is everything. It's Aristotle's ethics, Aristotle and Plato's politics writ large. So at the end of the 19th century, there was an author the, that is it's, uh, I like his stuff I like his writings Is oh Henry he was actually a Texan he lived in, in Austin Texas anyway yeah and he he uh, embezzled money from a bank about $25,000 I think from a bank in Galveston and when he's about to go to jail he beat feet for Honduras that we didn't have an extradition treaty with us and he stayed there for six years when he heard that his wife was sick and Dying he came back and and stayed with her until she passed away and turned himself in spent I think another six years in jail in Texas probably and That's where he started his writing career and gave himself that pseudonym I can't remember what his what his real name is, but he wrote a story About his experiences in Honduras that was supposed to be humorous just humorous but it was it's called of cabbages and kings it's quite long it's like a novella almost and there's still things in there that i experienced when i was that i saw little cultural bits and pieces that he writes about that were at his time there that i i saw when i was in in honduras in the in the 90s uh but this book was published this story was published about the time that we wanted to go to war with spain the where we you know the uh remember the Maine and the, the USS
0: the Maine Teddy yes Rose-
1: yeah and Teddy that probably was a, a false flag kind of a thing we think now and we wanted to in the Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders and all of that legend those legends and myths about that thing and so the the jinguistic press at the time picked that up and published it in their press as if that were the truth and it so that's where we, part of the reason why we have this idea of uh, the lazy Latin wearing his big sombrero sitting on the tree asleep while the revolution goes off in his ears. One revolution after another after another. But we've actually supported and contributed to that.
0: Yeah, let's, let's move forward in time. We've talked about what, what America did in the 1800s. And let's go into the 20th century with regard to Mexico, which there was a revolution in the 1910s.
1: Mm -hmm. 1910
0: and 1920s. Yeah, the 1920s and I think there is an abject story of the tragic results of uh, our attitude towards Mexico and our relations with Mm -hmm. Mexico and I think a book that is really great that talks a lot about this and also talks about the Masonic influence and that sort of thing is no God next door Red Rule in Mexico and Our Responsibility and it's by Michael Kinney who was a Catholic priest and in fact when this book came out it was suppressed for in fact I don't even know if it it can be uh, bought in Mexico at the present time perhaps it can but even in the United States and and this was written in in the 1930s but in the United States FDR somehow convinced the Catholic Church to pull the book from its shelves, for, so for 70 years it was not available for purchase in the United States. And you've read that book mm-hmm. too, uh, and I'd like you to kind of discuss what, what was the, the result in the 20th century of what had happened previously with our interventions mm-hmm. in Mexico or our influences in Mexico up until the time that this book was written?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's, first of all, if, the story of Joel Poinsett and then the the linguistic Press going against the Spanish and uh, using that sort of propaganda ideal rather than investigating it and knowing anything about Spanish tracks with our own movement towards, of our elite, towards a statist progressivist ideal. So, uh, The promise of utopia, of the positivists in the 19th century, failed, and uh, there was a president for 30 years named uh, Porfirio Diaz, those Porfiriatos, and he used to say, poor Mexico, so far from God and so close to the United States, or I think maybe it was around the other way around, so close to the United States and so far from God, and uh, he accepted running for president one too many times and so in 1910 when he became the president one more time there was a revolt and of course it starts with the elite and they start a civil war and that civil war lasted for ten years and at two million Mexicans died at the hand of their compatriots and that's when blackjack Pershing went into Mexico after uh, Pancho Villa and because he was crossing the border into into Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and raiding and all that sort of thing. So that is very bloody. And in 1917, they wrote the first their first constitution under this new revised thing. And Scott o, Otto Scott, in that interview with uh, William Payne, Powell. William
0: yeah.
1: Philip Wayne Powell that you mentioned, said that the, the Constitution of Mexico of 1970 was the first communist constitution in the history of the world. It's very interesting. So you get, after that, you move forward, you get the party called the, uh, the Permanent Revolution Party, the Partido Revolucionario Institucionado The PRI. My Spanish and English are confusing each other, so I can't pronounce things right. The PRI has domin- dominated politics in Mexico for 70 years. And it's interesting because you're, they said it was an institutionalized revolution. How do you have an institutionalized revolution? That's a whole other topic. It's interesting to talk about what the philosophy is behind that. So, in the twenties, the Calles uh, uh, regime tried to completely atheize, make atheists out of the, at, by force of arms out of the Mexican. Uh, people. So they confiscated land, they limited a the number of priests, they killed priests, they started hanging people off of poles, telephone poles, the campesinos that re- re- resisted him, and it was a movement that rose up against them that was actually quite successful. Go uh, Gotiari, I think, was the name of the general that, that stood up and organized these people, and they were called the Cristeros. And uh, that they made a deal to, for peace, and of course, the government went against it, and they wiped out, hung people that that had been with the Cristeros after promising them amnesty. And the interesting thing is, they went to look for the Cristeros were looking for help from anybody to give them arms to continue to fight. And uh, we had an opportunity to help them, and we and we didn't. We didn't. We stopped it. We uh, resisted that, and a lot of it had to do with negotiation with the government for our. Uh, corporate interests who they had confiscated the land from uh, the oil interests and that sort of thing and lots and lots has to do with uh, loans to Mexico from banks and protecting their assets and so we're interested in materialism and in gaining an advantage and we're interested in propaganda instead of truth in order to get an adva- a materialistic advantage so we're not following God's laws of justice in Mexico we didn't apparently didn't care and in the 30s this thing continues you have a one of our ambassadors just fawned all over this government that was in attempting to atheize to continue to atheize mexico to completely wipe out the influence of the church am i am I yeah on track? yeah and and read?
0: i think it's that ambassador who's dramatized in the great movie for the greater glory where he is on a train mm-hmm. with some of the. i can't remember if it was the president or or who it was uh smoothing it up and they and they pass mm-hmm. in that train they pass a whole bunch of poles with peasants hung from them
1: no, that, who were telegraph yeah, from poles. the yeah. telegraph
0: yeah. poles and although the ambassador was shocked, instead of inf- looking to his Christian conscience, he did the mm-hmm. will of the state and Mm -hmm. defied god's law and just continued on Mm -hmm. the relationship with uh, the mexican government at that time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but and what this caused was the destruction of church uh, destruction of family and destructions of other kinds of institutions and i'll tell you one of the things that that really hit me about about this book was what they were doing with the children they they the children could no longer go to the private parochial schools and I don't know if they had other kinds of Mm -hmm. private schools but they were forced to be educated by the state and not only were they forced Mm -hmm. to be educated by the state but the state took an active interest in destroying their characters their moral characters and Mm -hmm. do you want to discuss that a little bit
1: yeah, that that was after the Calles and the and the Cristeros, the the whole thing, you know, governments, people, they don't have control unless people cooperate with them. Conspiracies don't work unless there's already a market for what they want to offer. So there was a there was a certain amount of that there, and it, it continued on in the 30s. But the governments put on the pressure or take off the pressure depending on how much support they get from the people. And there's a lot of resistance. They'll try more well, I want to get I so want to get to edu- this
0: particular point. So let me direct you this because thing, we're this, we're mm-hmm. uh, we've done it, this for a very long time, and we're going to have to wrap up in a mm-hmm. little while. But the thing that jumped out to me is when they were educating these children, they were giving mm-hmm. giving them sex education, which mm-hmm. undermines yes, the foundations. And they were actually making these children mm-hmm. in mixed classrooms undress in front of each other. So why don't you comment about mm-hmm. that?
1: that was all over that was in several places where of course we're in Mexico City and is where things start often and there was a governor in Chiapas that did that made the children uh, uh, undress, boys and girls, teenagers undress in front of each other and it was to remove the Christian morality and of course people that are are addicted to sex are easy to control there's a whole book about that that's fascinating you ought to read called libido dominandi, uh, sex Sexual sex as a as a means of political control, and that's exactly that's part of, that's very typical of these regimes It's way back to the worship of Moloch and before. Yeah, that's
0: by E. Michael Jones. Uh,
1: yes, that's a good book. It's a long one, and it's sometimes it's uh, it's it, uh, ter- it's like watching a horror movie, but it's worth reading. And and, and you're not going to agree with everything because he's very Catholic and very anti-Protestant. But a lot of what he presents is worth understanding and that's what's happened to us in the united states so this was there was an actual effort to do that they had clubs for kids that met on sundays when they would have probably gone to catechism or some kind of mass or something and they had they had them chanting and in the schools there is no god there is no god well
0: this reminds me of our uh, public education system in the united states especially with regard to sexual morality because ever since sex education Mm -hmm. came in there has been an undermining of the Christian character Mm -hmm. and the Christian view towards sex and just Mm -hmm. you know what kids learn decreases their modesty it it causes them Mm -hmm. to push envelopes until they are easy to control because they develop addictions and their attention is diverted from more important things into something that is not
1: mm-hmm.
0: categorized by them properly
1: in the biblical sense. Yes. Right. Of course, it sounds real moral because you're trying to prevent pregnancies and all that kind of stuff. Actually, it's promoting pregnancies is promoting sexual uh, deviancy and and that's exactly the purpose is, is uh control and uh, the the elite that practice those things uh project that onto the rest of the population as saying they want if you know we're the deplorables if we don't go along with their sexual mores so that's exactly what's happened and what has happened here and the family we still have a strong uh, affinity for the family in mexico but it's falling apart and for this very same lots of divorce lots of Machistas, Rush Dooney, I think it was, said that feminism is uh, the demand to have the same rights to your responsibility as as machismo does.
0: Right. Well, there's two other little topics I want to discuss with you based Mm -hmm. on your study and your experience with regard to Mexico as well as the other countries in Hispanic America. But let's particularly Mm -hmm. look at Mexico. I want to discuss the North American Christian Church's response to the debacle of the Mexican Revolution and and Mm -hmm. the creation uh, or the writing of that communist uh, constitution that started off the persecution of the Catholic Church and the, and uh, essentially wholesale looting of Catholic churches and...
1: That looting of the Catholic Church started way back in the 19th century. Benito Juárez was the first.
0: Mm -hmm. And when was it that there was a period of time, though, that that a leader in Mexico took those those confiscated church properties because they weren't even they weren't just looting the churches, they were also taking the entire uh, physical churches and they were giving them to Protestant missionaries from the United States. When
1: I think Benito, I think Benito Juarez in the in the in the nineteenth century started that, and that's the oldest the oldest Protestant seminary in Latin America is the Presbyterian seminary in Mexico City. It was founded in eighteen eighty. About the, during all of that time when that was happening, so as I understand, he he even had some Protestant uh, Christian. You know, how Protestant are we, how Christian are we? You know, there's wheat among the there's tares among the wheat. So that that actually commanded forces for him and supported him because part of the reason is because we've been taught that the Catholics are our enemy, our primary enemy. Really humanism is our primary enemy. I actually pray for the Catholic Church to be reformed once a week. Well,
0: my understanding I have
1: I have a lot of friends. My, that, I have a lot of friends who are Catholic. My understanding from
0: Tree of Hate, uh, according to Powell, is that he said that in the 1500s, when they were beginning their empire over there, they had already started reforming their, the Spanish Catholic Church with many of the reforms that Luther was concerned about.
1: It was a, a, counter-reformation, a counter-reformation, and it kind of went in a different direction. And, of course, the Council of Trent that formed the modern Catholic Church was started three years before Luther died, and they were trying to deal with these things, and what they actually, the, the weakness of that whole reform movement was they actually codified the errors of the medieval Catholicism towards the end of the era that re- Luther and the rest of the reformers revolted against, some, you know, worship of Mary and that, all that sort of thing, where that's the weakness, but they were they did a lot of things to try to reform the abuses.
0: What I really wanted to get back to was the idea that Christians would go, come to Mexico or go to Mexico and take over properties that they knew were stolen from the Catholic Church. What is your take on that?
1: Well, if you think that the Pope is the Antichrist, you're doing a favor to the, to the kingdom to do that, don't you think? And then you had this whole movement of the positivists, uh, the pietistic Christians, you read about that in William in, uh, in Murray Rothbard's book, the Prog- the Progressive Era. That's a fascinating book uh, about the politics of the United States. So you you have to take all of those pieces together and try to get them together and say, well, why would they do that? It's because they they really were statist Christians, uh, most a lot of these Protestants, and then you have the Pietistic, the, the dispensationalists. A lot of our missionaries that have come to Mexico. Uh, have been more anti-Catholic than pro-God's law. And they have been, we, we're waiting for a rapture. We're gonna get out of this place. So we don't have anything that we're not supposed to say anything about the way the country is run or the politics or the economics. That's just the way it is. And that's, we're gonna get the, uh, pick the brands out of the fire and get them into heaven. And when they die, they'll go to heaven. But changing the the uh, the uh, culture of Mexico is not, is not in our bailiwick. So our statement of what our purpose is, is to build the intellectual foundation of the future Christian civilization in Mexico is a radical departure from the missionary currents for I'd say over a hundred years here.
0: So basically they came into Mexico and gave deference to a government that they had to know was in all sorts of ways trying to destroy the
1: influence of God's law. Well, they didn't know that because they were—that's what they—they they were cut of the same cloth. So they actually agreed with it. Their thinking was much, very much of the same kind of. Well, we can be Christians, and this guy's doing good things because he's stopping the Catholic Church and all. And, and much of the propaganda about the Spanish conquest of the empire. And so, why wouldn't we support it? If we really believe that, that's what we've been taught, that's what we've been propagandized to believe. So I'm not sure that they should have known that because their worldview was really uh, distorted Christianity. I see.
0: Well, what might we conclude from this sad story about what North America's approach to foreign affairs using propaganda and demonization of people and countries? And what do you think the Christian approach should have been?
1: Well, the first thing I'd say is that that's a product of statism, not of Christianity. We had the, we still had the language, we still used the vocabulary of holiness. But we had abandoned God's law as the guide for how we ought to be running the country. Uh, what I think should have happened is we shouldn't have had an ambassador from the federal government in Mexico, we should have encouraged the churches to send missionaries. And uh, one of the things that Poinsett did that was wrong was to try to encourage Mexico to copy the United States, and and the the president at the time, who was eventually assassinated, I think, said it's not going to work here because we have this. What what he described was actually more like the idea of how how Israel was governed. There was a central government, but it was spread out, and much of the most of the government was done at the local area. There was uh, centers where the Catholic Church had teaching, where that would like a Levitical function, but everything outside of that was free. You got five acres, I think, if you were um, a man on foot, and if you had oxen, you could have 20 acres or something like that, but that was your land. You went out and populated it, and you got your training about how you were supposed to be living, the ethics of life when you went into the church, and they had schools there, basically what would amounted to Catholic schools, and uh, we demonize them but we never look at the facts of what good they did but how god actually this is providence this is not lifting up the catholic church or or shooting holes at all of the protestants it's saying god's providence has allowed allows us to make our mistakes and pay our consequences for it but he also keeps moving his kingdom forward it's it's like a ratchet it goes forward, and then it comes back somebody. it never goes back all the way. So we are progressing. And because Christ is sovereign over Mexico, I have a lot of hope for the future of Mexico. I'm not sure that I answered your question, but that's... I think
0: you've, what you've answered is the next question I was going to ask you is how Reconstruction, Christian Reconstruction or other uh, movements are advancing the kingdom in Mexico.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the spirit is moving here because I keep bumping into people that uh, have become... Advocates of God's law. I, I hate. I, I I'd say faith for all of life more than using the terms theonomy and reconstruction, because those aren't so polemic and they, they're understandable. Everybody, who could disagree with that? But that's what it's about. And uh, so there's people all over that are translating books. Uh, a young man that I just that I performed his wedding this summer, and he's already expecting a child. God, that's how we conquer Mexico. Is, married Christian families and uh, Christian couples and they have children and they raise them up in in the in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that's really hopeful but he sends me copies pages pictures in Facebook Messenger of pages that he's translating with stuff highlighted says I don't understand what this what this means so I have to stop and go and help him and explain it to him and I have to read the context and so forth so there's all of this kind of stuff is going on in, under the surface, and there's a, there is a, an awakening. There's uh, everybody uses internet, uh, everybody is connected with each other. So there's a skepticism about how the state, as as the god of Mexico, the state really is the god of Mexico, uh, not Catholicism, not the god of Catholicism, but the state that permits this is more like the Roman Empire. So there's a movement and awakening, and there's hunger to say, so what's the answer? This isn't working. So, uh, I think those are all very positive, uh, That's movements. Good. yeah, so and then what we, I think, you know, you think about what did the positivists do in the 19th century, first thing you did was take over the education system. What's the easiest thing to do right now as a missionary is to start a school. People come to our school by word of mouth because they're fed up with the public education system, they're fed up with bullying, they're fed up with teaching five-year-olds about gender confusion and about homosexuality and they don't want their the christians do not want their children to grow up in that they don't understand anything else they don't understand the rest of the story but they don't want that so they hear about our school and they come to our school because the atmosphere is we teach god's law we repeat the ten commandments every morning say the lord's prayer they memorize scripture and and so at, the school end up becoming a ministry to families not just to the kids because we have a school of the fathers about three, four times a year. And we I teach I teach basically theonomy and reconstruction uh, faith for all of life. Why do we have this school? Why should you send your kids here? Why should you not send them to the public school? Why should you not worry that you're about the the propaganda, the intimidation of the state, that your kids will not be able to get a job if they don't get a great a, a degree from the system. In Mexico, we have ways around that. That doesn't, we always figure that out. But I always challenge the parents. You know, when you come to the Learning Center, it's gotta be a calling. You have to understand what the, they have to understand what the the doctor of laws that I was talking about in the first place, that we're raising up an army of little soldiers against the state. They don't carry arms. They, their weapon is applying God's law to every area of life with themselves and their families first And when that becomes to have a movement, then the Mexicans will produce a change, will demand a change in the government. You don't change the government to change the people. You change the people to change the government.
0: And I think this sad story that you've told and that is told in the tree of hate by Philip Wayne Powell, No God Next Door, Mm -hmm. and also you mentioned the book Caldero, which is also by Philip Wayne Powell. Mm -hmm. As well as the book Libido Dominati. I think all of those things can point us forward in what our present foreign affairs and foreign policy should be Mm -hmm. with regard to any other country in the world. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? Yep. All right. Well, Roger, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. And I also want to announce that Roger will be continuing on this podcast as a co-host with me in the future. That's a great thought. Are you kidding? I think it's a great thought. I hope everyone enjoyed this and learned from it and will join us for the future webcast podcasts. And I want to say goodbye from Justice in His Kingdom. Until next time.